Section twenty eight of Volume One B of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of sixteen eighty eight. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of sixteen eighty eight by David Hume. Volume One B, Section Twenty Eight, Chapter Sixteen, Part One. Edward the Third. The prudent conduct and great success of Edward in his foreign wars had excited a strong emulation and a military genius among the English nobility, and these turbulent barons, overawed by the crown, gave now a more useful direction to their ambition and attached themselves to a prince, who led them to the acquisition of riches and glory. That he might further promote the spirit of emulation and obedience, the king instituted the Order of the Garter, in imitation of some orders of a like nature, religious as well as military, which had been established in different parts of Europe. The number received into this order consisted of twenty-five persons besides the sovereign and as it has never been enlarged this badge of distinction continues as honourable as at its first institution and is still a valuable though a cheap present which the prince can confer on his greatest subjects a vulgar story prevails but is not supported by any ancient authority that at a court ball edward's mistress commonly supposed to be the countess of salisbury dropped her garter and the king taking it up observed some of the courtiers to smile as if they thought that he had not obtained this favour merely by accident upon which he called out on y soit qui me pense evil to him that evil thinks and as every incident of gallantry among those ancient warriors was magnified into a matter of great importance he instituted the order of the garter in memorial of this event and gave these words as the motto of the order this origin though frivolous is not unsuitable to the manners of the times and it is indeed difficult by any other means to account either for the seemingly unmeaning terms of the motto or for the peculiar badge of the garter which seems to have no reference to any purpose either of military use or ornament but a sudden damp was thrown over this festivity and triumph of the court of england by a destructive pestilence which invaded that kingdom as well as the rest of europe and is computed to have swept away nearly a third of the inhabitants in every country which it attacked. It was probably more fatal in great cities than in the country, and above fifty thousand souls are said to have perished by it in London alone. This malady first discovered itself in the north of Asia, was spread over all that country, made its progress from one end of Europe to the other, and sensibly depopulated every state through which it passed 
so grievous a calamity more than the pacific disposition of the princes served to maintain and prolong the truce between france and england during this truce philip de valois died without being able to re-establish the affairs of france which his bad success against england had thrown into extreme disorder this monarch during the first years of his reign had obtained the appellation of fortunate and acquired the character of prudent but he ill maintained either the one or the other less from his own fault than because he was overmatched by the superior fortune and superior genius of edward but the incidents in the reign of his son gave the french nation cause to regret even the calamitous times of his predecessor john was distinguished by many virtues particularly a scrupulous honour and fidelity he was not deficient in personal courage but as he wanted that masterly prudence and foresight which his difficult situation required his kingdom was at the same time disturbed by intestine commotions and oppressed with foreign wars the chief source of its calamities was charles king of navarre who received the epithet of the bad or wicked and whose conduct fully entitled him to that appellation this prince was descended from males of the blood royal of france his mother was daughter of louis soutin he had himself espoused a daughter of king john but all these ties which ought to have connected him with the throne gave him only greater power to shake and overthrow it with regard to his personal qualities he was courteous affable engaging eloquent full of insinuation and address inexhaustible in his resources active and enterprising but these splendid accomplishments were attended with such defects as rendered them pernicious to his country and even ruinous to himself he was volatile inconstant faithless revengeful malicious restrained by no principle or duty insatiable in his pretensions and whether successful or unfortunate in one enterprise he immediately undertook another in which he was never deterred from employing the most criminal and most dishonourable expedients the constable of you who had been taken prisoner by edward at caen recovered his liberty on the promise of delivering as his ransom the town of guinea near calais of which he was superior lord but as john was offended at this stipulation which if fulfilled opened still farther that frontier to the enemy and as he suspected the constable of more dangerous connections with the king of england he ordered him to be seized and without any legal or formal trial put him to death in prison charles de la cerda was appointed constable in his place and had a like fatal end the king of navarre ordered him to be assassinated and such was the weakness of the crown that this prince instead of dreading punishment would not even agree to ask pardon for his offence 
but on condition that he should receive an accession of territory and he had also john's second son put into his hands as a security for his person when he came to court and performed this act of mock penitence and humiliation before his sovereign the two french princes seemed entirely reconciled but this dissimulation to which john submitted from necessity and charles from habit did not long continue and the king of navarre knew that he had reason to apprehend the most severe vengeance for the many crimes and treasons which he had already committed and the still greater which he was meditating to ensure himself of protection he entered into a secret correspondence with england by means of henry earl of derby now earl of lancaster who at that time was employed in fruitless negotiations for peace at avignon under the mediation of the pope john detected this correspondence and to prevent the dangerous effects of it he sent forces into normandy the chief seat of the king of navarre's power and attacked his castles and fortresses but hearing that edward had prepared an army to support his ally he had the weakness to propose an accommodation with charles and even to give this traitorous subject the sum of a hundred thousand crowns as the purchase of a feigned reconcilement which rendered him still more dangerous the king of navarre insolent from past impunity and desperate from the dangers which he apprehended continued his intrigues and associating himself with geoffrey de harcourt who had received his pardon from philip de valois but persevered still in his factious disposition he increased the number of his partisans in every part of the kingdom he even seduced by his address charles the king of france's eldest son a youth of seventeen years of age who was the first that bore the appellation of dauphin by the reunion of the province of dauphiny to the crown but this prince being made sensible of the danger and folly of these connections promised to make atonement for the offence by the sacrifice of his associates and in concert with his father he invited the king of navarre and other noblemen of the party to a feast at royan where they were betrayed into the hands of john some of the most obnoxious were immediately led to execution the king of navarre was thrown into prison but this stroke of severity in the king and of treachery in the dauphin was far from proving decisive in maintaining the royal authority philip of navarre brother to charles and geoffrey de harcourt put all the towns and castles belonging to that prince in a posture of defence and had immediate recourse to the protection of england in this desperate extremity the truce between the two kingdoms which had always been ill observed on both sides was now expired and edward was entirely free to support the french malcontents well pleased that the factions in france had at length gained him some partisans in that kingdom which his pretensions to the crown had never been able to accomplish he purposed to attack his enemy both on the side of guyenne 
under the command of the Prince of Wales, and on that of Calais, in his own person. Young Edward arrived in the Garonne with his army, on board a fleet of three hundred sail, attended by the earls of Avesbury, Warwick, Salisbury, Oxford, Suffolk, and other English noblemen. Being joined by the vassals of Gascony, he took to the field, and as the present disorders in France prevented every proper plan of defence, he carried on with impunity his ravages and devastations, according to the mode of war in that age. He reduced all the villages and several towns in Languedoc to ashes. He presented himself before Toulouse, passed the Garonne, and burned the suburbs of Carcassonne, advanced even to Narbonne, laying every place waste around him, and after an incursion of six weeks, returned with a vast booty and many prisoners to the Goyenne, where he took up his winter quarters. The constable of Bourbon, who commanded in those provinces, received orders, though at the head of a superior army, on no account to run the hazard of a battle. The King of England's incursion from Calais was of the same nature, and attended with the same issue. He broke into France at the head of a numerous army, to which he gave a full license of plundering and ravaging the open country. He advanced to Saint-Omer, where the King of France was posted, and on the retreat of that prince followed him to Hesdin. John still kept at a distance, and declined an engagement, but in order to save his reputation he sent Edward a challenge to fight a pitched battle with him, a usual bravado in that age, derived from the practice of single combat, and ridiculous in the art of war. The king, finding no sincerity in this defiance, retired to Calais, and thence went over to England in order to defend that kingdom against a threatened invasion of the Scots. The Scots, taking advantage of the king's absence, and that of the military power of England, had surprised Berwick, and had collected an army with a view of committing ravages upon the northern provinces. But on the approach of Edward they abandoned that place which was not tenable, while the castle was in the hands of the English, and retiring to their mountains gave the enemy full liberty of burning and destroying the whole country from Berwick to Edinburgh. Balliol attended Edward on this expedition, but finding that his constant adherence to the English had given his countrymen an unconquerable aversion to his title, and that he himself was declining through age and infirmities, he finally resigned into the king's hands his pretensions to the crown of Scotland, and received in lieu of them an annual pension of two thousand pounds, with which he passed the remainder of his life in privacy and retirement. During these military operations, Edward received information of the increasing disorders in France, arising from the imprisonment of the King of Navarre, and he sent Lancaster at the head of a small army to support the partisans of that prince in Normandy. 
the war was conducted with various success but chiefly to the disadvantage of the french malcontents till an important event happened in the other quarter of the kingdom which had well nigh proved fatal to the monarchy of france and threw everything into the utmost confusion the prince of wales encouraged by the success of the preceding campaign took the field with an army which no historian makes amount to above twelve thousand men and of which not a third were english and with this small body he ventured to penetrate into the heart of france after ravaging the agenois quercy and the limousin he entered the province of berry and made some attacks though without success on the towns of bourget and isodun it appeared that his intentions were to march into normandy and to join his forces with those of the earl of lancaster and the partisans of the king of navarre but finding all the bridges on the loire broken down and every pass carefully guarded he was obliged to think of making his retreat into Guyenne. he found this resolution the more necessary from the intelligence which he received from the king of france's motions that monarch provided the insult offered him by this incursion and entertaining hopes of success from the young prince's temerity collected a great army of above sixty thousand men and advanced by hasty marches to intercept his enemy the prince not aware of john's near approach lost some days on his retreat before the castle of remorantin and therefore gave the french an opportunity of overtaking him they came within sight at maupertois near poitiers and edward sensible that his retreat was now become impracticable prepared for battle with all the courage of a young hero and with all the prudence of the oldest and most experienced commander but the utmost prudence and courage would have proved insufficient to save him in this extremity had the king of france known how to make use of his present advantages his great superiority in numbers enabled him to surround the enemy and by intercepting all provisions which were already become scarce in the english camp to reduce this small army without a blow to the necessity of surrendering at discretion but such was the impatient ardour of the french nobility and so much had their thoughts been bent on overtaking the english as their sole object that this idea never struck any of the commanders and they immediately took measures for the assault as for a certain victory while the french army was drawn up in order of battle they were stopped by the appearance of the cardinal of perigord who having learned the approach of the two armies to each other had hastened by interposing his good offices to prevent any further effusion of christian blood by john's permission he carried proposals to the prince of wales and found him so sensible of the bad posture of his affairs that an accommodation seemed not impracticable edward told him that he would agree to any terms consistent with his own honour and that of england and he offered to purchase a retreat 
by ceding all the conquests which he had made during this and the former campaign, and by stipulating not to serve against France during the course of seven years. But John, imagining that he had now got into his hands a sufficient pledge for the restitution of Calais, required that Edward should surrender himself prisoner with a hundred of his attendants, and offered on these terms a safe retreat to the English army. The prince rejected the proposal with disdain, and declared that whatever fortune might attend him, England should never be obliged to pay the price of his ransom. This resolute answer cut off all hopes of accommodation, but as the day was already spent in negotiation, the battle was delayed till the next morning. The Cardinal of Perigord, as did all the prelates of the court of Rome, bore a great attachment to the French interest, but the most determined enemy could not, by any expedient, have done a greater prejudice to John's affairs than he did them by this delay. The Prince of Wales had leisure, during the night, to strengthen, by new entrenchments, the post which he had before so judiciously chosen, and he contrived an ambush of three hundred men at arms, and as many archers, whom he put under the command of the Captal de Bouche, and ordered to make a circuit that they might fall on the flank or rear of the French army during the engagement. The van of his army was commanded by the Earl of Warwick, the rear by the Earls of Salisbury and Suffolk, the main body by the Prince himself, the Lords Chandos, Audley, and many other brave and experienced commanders were at the head of different corps of his army. John also arranged his forces in three divisions, nearly equal. The first was commanded by the Duke of Orléans, the king's brother, the second by the Dauphin, attended by his two younger brothers, the third by the king himself, who had by his side Philip, his fourth son and favourite, then about fourteen years of age. There was no reaching the English army but through a narrow lane, covered on each side by hedges, and in order to open this passage the marshals, Andrehen and Clermont, were ordered to advance with a separate detachment of men-at-arms. While they marched along the lane, a body of English archers who lined the hedges plied them on each side with their arrows, and being very near them, yet placed in perfect safety, they coolly took their aim against the enemy, and slaughtered them with impunity. The French detachment, much discouraged by the unequal combat, and diminished in their number, arrived at the end of the lane, where they met on the open ground the Prince of Wales himself, at the head of a chosen body, ready for their reception. They were discomfited and overthrown. One of the marshals was slain, the other taken prisoner, and the remainder of the detachment who were still in the lane, and exposed to the shot of the enemy, without being able to make resistance, recoiled upon their own army, and put everything into disorder. End of section 28